your family? Yes. Is that okay? All right. There we go. Well, on behalf of your brothers and sisters at, at Grace Harbor Church in New Bedford, uh, man, I bring with me great affection. Uh, great, great affection for, for you. I can personally tell you that there is not a single week that we do not miss you guys. There's not, there's not a single week that, that, that I, we don't miss Travis's humor. There's not a single week that we don't miss Kevin's crying. And personally, there's not a single week that I don't miss Bob Bullock yelling at me for random things. So, man, you guys are missed. And so I, I really do hope and pray like, like the good type of pride and, and affection that a parent feels over a child who's just celebrated a birthday. As Grace Harbor, New Bedford, just a couple of weeks ago, turned two years old. I, I pr- That's right. Come on. I pray that, that, you, that you, Grace Harbor Providence, would, would feel pride in that, would, would, would be proud of that. God used your faithfulness to establish a church in a city that needed the gospel. And so, so man, we're, we're, we're so thankful for you. And, and, and so let me just say on, on behalf of all the saints that are there gathering this morning, uh, and specifically uh, from people like like. A single mom named Missy, single mom of five, five kids who, who became a Christian this past year and was baptized on Easter. Or, or on behalf of another woman named Anna who lives in our neighborhood who's been abused most of her life and who is now walking with the Lord. And from others like them, let me, let me just say thank you for your faithfulness, for your love, for the people of New Bedford. And uh, we pray and are excited about what the Lord might do through Grace Harbor Providence and even in future church plants as well. And so, so we love you guys. Let me, let me just tell you right now, uh, uh, as Heidi read for us, we have our work cut out for us today. We, we got to get through an entire chapter of Matthew chapter 23. So grab your Bibles, open them up. Uh, if you're using those pew Bibles in front of you, that can be found on page 878. And if this morning, you know, you're, you're just kind of joining into the, the, the narrative here um, and you're unfamiliar with the, the gospel of Matthew, let me just catch you up on what's been happening in the first 22 chapters. Essentially, what's been happening is Matthew has been, been, been writing and, and he wants his readers to understand that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Christ. That he is the promised Savior King. He is the very fulfillment of prophecy. He is the epicenter of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom um, of, of where, the, where the kingdom of, of earth meet together, where they join. He is the very one that God the Father sent to earth to pay for the penalty of sin, to absorb God's wrath against sin, and make forgiveness possible for those who would, by faith and repentance, and trust their entire earthly lives to him. And where we pick up in, in, in chapter 23 specifically is with Jesus' enemies coming out of the woodwork and circling him like a pack of wolves. First in chapter 21, we see leaders gathering together to, to question Jesus' authority. Then in chapter 22, it's, it's the Pharisees that show up and they start questioning him about about paying taxes, followed by another group called the Sadducees who begin to drill Jesus about questions pertaining to the resurrection, something that they don't even agree, they don't even believe in, but they're going to question him about it anyhow. 
And then in chapter 22, verse 35, there's this expert of the, the law. This, the, the expert of the religious law comes trying to, to set a trap for him and asks him to summarize the entire Torah into one concise command. And so for two chapters now, Jesus' enemies have been ferocious in their frontal attack against him, questioning him, judging him, trying to trick him, trying to trap him. And what's been amazing in this frontal assault that Jesus is receiving is Jesus' response. He's been, he's been nothing but patient with them. He, he's been long-suffering with them. He's, he's endured their foolishness and their nonsense. Jesus has been bearing with them, hoping that, that as he answers their questions, that their hearts might be softened and that they would actually turn and acknowledge him as Lord. Which, friends, this morning, man, that, that's just great news for us. It's a great encouragement for us this morning that the God of heaven and earth is patient with skeptics. He's, he's patient with doubters. He's patient with antagonizers. He's even patient with our foolishness. Man, Michael Chang, I see you down there. Sorry, I just got distracted. So many people I love, I'm just like, oh. He's even patient with our foolishness. Why? Well, for the same reason he's patient with theirs, so that we might acknowledge Christ rightly and worship and love him wholly. And yet, what we see in chapter 22, verse 41, is that there's this moment in the text when the conversation turns. There's this moment that Jesus says, enough is enough. And he begins to ask some of his own questions. And when he does, look at the way that chapter 22 ends. It says, and no one was able to answer him. And from that day on, no one dared to question him anymore. In other words, there, there's this, there's a, there came this moment that, that Jesus had had enough. He was patient. He was kind. He answered the questions. And now that time is over. And this morning, what we see in our text is that before Jesus allows his enemies to put him on trial, to interrogate him, to eventually kill him, he's actually going to put them on trial and to judge them according to their, their deeds, which is also, it's a good word for us this morning, friends. You see, God, God's word to us this morning serves both as a reminder, perhaps a rebuke, but most certainly a call. That there is this day quickly coming, that the time for figuring out who we believe Jesus to be, it's just going to be over. That there's this day quickly coming that, that deciding who we're going to live our lives for, who we're going to give our affection towards, who we're going to direct our worship at, is going to be over. And what we will see is that, is that he's either going to be our loving king for those who belong to him, or he's going to be the, the coming judge for those who will reject him. So, all of that is what brings us to our text this morning. And what we see in chapter 23 is that you and I must be on guard against spiritual deception, lest we fill our heads with knowledge, but live our lives with wayward hearts and flickering obedience. I see some of you guys taking notes. Let me just repeat that for you. This is our kind of where we're landing. Be on guard against spiritual deception. 
Must we fill our heads with knowledge, but live our lives with wayward hearts and flickering obedience? Now, I notice we've got some kids, kids in the room, which is great because you guys bring the fun. So, uh, kids, let me, eyes up here, ears open. Let me have your attention for a moment. Here's what, here's what the Bible wants you to know this morning from our text, from Matthew chapter 23, okay? So, I, I see you guys. Here's what God wants you to know. God shows us our brokenness so that we will ask him to heal us. God shows us our brokenness so we will ask him to heal us. Parents, you might want to write that down so you can talk to your kids about that on the way home in the car. God shows us our brokenness, kids, for a reason so that we will ask him to heal us. But before we dive in any further, let's, let's ask God's help to help us believe these things this morning. God of, of heaven and earth, from the youngest of us to the oldest, Unless your, your spirit humbles us this morning and imparts faith into our hearts, we will live our days in spiritual deception. That spiritual deception will lead us to reject Christ, and it will lead Christ to reject us. And so we, we plead with you this morning, Lord, explo- expose our blind spots, uncover our hearts, save us from ourselves. It would be a great kindness from you, Lord, to reveal our sin to us this morning and to lead us to repentance. So please do that, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So Jesus has shifted from answering questions to asking questions, and now from talking to his enemies to pronouncing judgment upon them, which is why Jesus now begins to turn the conversation and he begins to roll out this, the, this list of indictments and charges against Jewish leaders. And, and what's, here, here's, here's what we want to make sure we don't miss this morning. Jesus, who is God, is speaking God's words to these men. So it's not just like, like anybody's pronouncing these woes. It's actually God pronouncing woes to these to these groups of, 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 of religious leaders. And, and as he does, he not only exposes their hypocrisy, but I think, family, as we listen and as we kind of open our hearts to the text this morning, if we listen closely, we'll be able to feel our own hearts being exposed as well. You see, these, these warnings are not just for the scribes and the Pharisees of the day, but, but to anyone who professes Christ. And the way that the Holy Spirit's going to expose our hearts this morning is through several, what I just want to call heart questions. Heart questions that naturally come from the text. And the first heart question for us this morning is this. Are we men and women who practice what we preach? Are we, are we believers who practice what we preach? Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. It says this. It says, Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and and to the disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees are seated in the chair of Moses. Therefore, do whatever they tell you and observe it. But don't do what they do, because they don't practice what they teach. 
They tie up heavy loads that are hard to carry and put them on people's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. All right, so so let's remember, chapter 22 finishes with Jesus in a crowd of spiritually broken people. He's teaching them how to, how to find true and, and lasting peace, the, a type of peace that they've, they've lived their whole lives searching for and unable to, to, to satisfy. But, but, but then these, these wolves, these, these religious teachers come along and, and they begin to scare the crowds with their status, with their, their power. They, they're trying to convince them to, the, the crowds to not grab hold of this peace that Jesus is offering, but rather to reject it. And the way they go about doing this is with deceitful scare tactics. Thinking that if they can just just ask Jesus divisive questions, then he will trap himself and the people will will cease to follow him. But but their plans backfire, don't they? Jesus Jesus answers all of his enemies' questions. He answers their questions from their own scriptures. And then he begins to ask them questions that they cannot answer to such a degree that it says they dared no more to ask him anything. Now here in verse 1, with with his enemies before him, right? So you can just just picture that there's, there's a crowd of spiritually broken people. The disciples are there. His enemies are there. It's just kind of this, this, this hodgepodge of people with his, with his all there together. Jesus begins to teach and pronounce judgment upon the groups of, of leaders that are right there in front of him. And as he, he does, he begins to describe who they really are. You can only imagine how awkward that must have been. Right? Like, like, we're, like every, I mean, Jesus is talking. He begins to pronounce judgment. Everybody's looking at them. He says, he says, they have Moses' authority to teach God's word. These guys, right over here. They have Moses' authority to teach God's word, so you should listen to them. But don't do what they don't do. Because they don't, they don't practice it. They don't, they don't live it. Now, a couple of things that we shouldn't miss. First, these leaders were devout and sincere in what they were doing. And yet, despite their sincerity... They were deceived. Listen, spiritual deception is real. We, we, can completely, we can be completely devoted to something and it be completely the wrong thing. We can be entirely sincere and yet at the same time be sincerely wrong. It's why we must live our lives as, as believers submitted to God's word. We can genuinely believe that we're doing God's work, obeying God's word, accomplishing God's will, and yet be spiritually deceived and find ourselves, as, as these men did, as enemies of God. But secondly, don't miss that what Jesus is offering is something completely different than what these guys are offering. Jesus says what, what, what they're offering is, is backbreaking. It's, it's heavy. It's, it's hard to carry. So heavy, so hard to carry that they themselves aren't even willing to, to, to carry it themselves. But what I'm offering you, what I'm offering you, all of you who are weary and burdened, well, I'm offering you to come to me and I'll give you rest to take my yoke and to learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. See, what, what Jesus is offering is something completely different. He says, what I'm offering you is better. In fact, what I'm offering is to do exactly for you what, what they are lumping upon you and what they won't do themselves. And so the first question, church, that we have for us this morning is, are we practicing what we preach? Is there consistency between what you say and how you live? You see, our text this morning should cause us to, to look around at, at today's spiritual leaders, to pastors, those in the church who are entrusted with, with teaching God's word and leading his body. And in part, what, what Jesus is saying is to those who teach is that they should be committed to every bit of what they're calling other people to do. But that is, just isn't a reality for those who teach. It's a reality for all who claim to follow Christ. You see, it's important that it's important that, that the expectation that to know that the expectation is not perfection. But if you're a Christian, it's crucial that we practice what we seek to proclaim. That God's word should be clear from our lips and evident in our lives. Obviously not perfectly, but certainly. And so, friend, how would you answer that question this morning? Who is it that, that you claim to follow? Does your, does your life reflect that claim? And church, I, I, would, I would encourage you to, to not answer any of these questions too quickly this morning. Don't, don't respond in pride. Pause, consider, maybe, maybe write them down. Maybe take them home, pray over them, ask God to search you. You see, our text this morning should lead us somewhere. Not just dismissing it, but lead us to, to actually pause and to consider. Now, in verses 5 through 7, we see the second heart question that we must ask ourselves. And that is, are we men and women who are satisfied with God's approval? Of us, Are we satisfied with God's approval? Is what God thinks about us enough, or, or do we live for the approval of others? Verse 5 says, says they, speaking of, of, of these religious leaders, they do everything to be seen by who? By others. They enlarged their philosophies, which, which were these wooden boxes that, that they wore on their forehead, that, that they had God's laws written on these little little tablets, sheets of paper that they would they'd put in. They, it says they lengthened their tassels, verse 6. They loved the place of honor at banquets, the front seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called rabbi by people. All of these things they were using to draw attention to not the Lord, but, but to, them, to themselves. Now, kids, if you want to have a little bit of fun, you could rename the experts of the law that we see in chapter 22, and you could call them Mr. Smarty Pants, if you wanted to. And here in chapter 23, you could rename these Jewish leaders and call them Mr. Somebodies. They, they were men who wanted everybody to know that they were somebody. They want everyone to know who they are. 
from the way they, they dress to the, the place they sit to the way they, they walk and they talk. They want everyone to know who they are. Jesus says, these guys, I mean, they, every, their whole life is about being seen by others. They're an outward show. They, they, they live for titles and seats of honor. They've, they've taken Moses' role and made it about celebrity appearances and VIP status. Which just happens to be the exact opposite of what Jesus himself taught the people and called them to back in Matthew chapter 6. Listen, listen to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 6. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Be careful not, not to do it to be, to be seen by others. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't, don't sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the street. To be applauded by people, truly I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give, give to the poor. Don't let your left, left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be done in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you, you pray, you must not be be praying like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by who? By everyone. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, the question is, is not, do other people see us? But rather, what is it doing for us when they do? Is what, was what God thinks about me enough to, to sustain my emotional needs? And if it is, then, then I should be content with, with the smile and the approval of God upon me. That, that all of our emotional insecurities would be healed by a deep-seated understanding that we are deeply loved sons and daughters of God. And the joy that we find in this is better than any reward or accolades that we would get from others. I, I pray, church, that if you are in Christ this morning, that you would find God's approval of you satisfying. That, that that would actually be refreshing to your soul. That all the favor that you that you are longing to earn, no matter how many daddy issues we might have, that with with the Lord, like. Our Father, we've, we have, He's fulfilled us through Christ. He's approved of us. But our text this morning has, has even more for us. The third heart question that, that our text asks of us is this. In what ways are we competing for power or position in this life? In what ways are we competing for power or position in this life? Look at verses 8 through 10. It says, but you are, are not to be called rabbi because you have one teacher. You, you're not a an, an, uh, teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. Do not call anyone on earth your father because you have one father who is in heaven. You are not to be called instructors either because you have one instructor, the Messiah. Now, don't get caught up in titles or names. It, it's, what he's talking about here is it's not, about, it's not that titles and names are bad but rather the posture of heart that these men have demonstrated because they have such titles. Jesus isn't denouncing spiritual leadership. 
He's just denouncing bad spiritual leadership. Teachers who are, who are drawing people away from Christ and to themselves. Leaders who, who use their positions to, to jockey for power, status, or, or superiority. And by doing so, they're actually subverting Christ's superiority. And the warning that Jesus is giving them is a warning essentially against pride. Pride that is, is manifesting itself in, in comparing ourselves to others. C.S. Lewis has this, this famous quote that says, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only having more of it than the next man. In other words, it's not just that you want to be pretty. You want to be prettier than other people. It's not just that you want to be, be good in your profession or, your, or in your field. You want to be better than others in your field. It's like this. If, if you worked, say you worked really hard and, and you saved lots of money to, to save and buy for yourself one of those cute little uh, Porsche SUVs, right? And, and, and you, man, you were just, like, you did it. You arrived. But then you woke up the next morning and the state of Rhode Island had blessed every other resident with the same type of Porsche SUV. Guess what? You would no longer feel that sense of accomplishment because now, well, it's just ordinary. Your work was just ordinary. Now everybody has that. That's essentially what, what he's saying here. See, in verses 8 through 10, Jesus says there's, there's something going on in these guys' heart that isn't good. And I wonder, friends, how much of what's happening in their hearts might also be happening in our hearts. I wonder if Jesus were to ask, to ask us the same question, were to ask me the same question. Morgan, does your heart delight in receiving honor from others? I wonder what my inner, inner man would say. Morgan, do you, do you find comfort in believing that you're better than others? Do you, do you exalt yourself in your mind over others? If Jesus were to ask us any of these questions, as he is in the text, what might we say? See, what we see is that comparison kills which is why our text calls us to exalt Christ over ourselves, which is the fourth heart question for us this morning. And that is this. Who is it that we exalt? Are we exalting Christ or ourselves? Verse 11 and 12 says, The greatest among you will be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be what? You guys reading with me? Exalted. You see, time and time again, and what Matthew was showing us in his gospel is this upside-down kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, greatness is not defined by skill or aptitude, but rather by something that we would least expect. Servanthood. Jesus says, God humbles the self-exalted and he exalts the self-humbled. I have a, a buddy who calls this Jesus math. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. But be assured, it's correct. Now, as we, as we come to verse 13, the, the conversation once again shifts. Jesus goes from, from talking about Jewish leaders 
to talking to these Jewish leaders. And the way that he does so uh, might even make, perhaps, make some of us cringe a little bit. We, we, we typically like to think of Jesus as, as speaking only kindly and loving, never speaking harshly. So to see him denouncing people, pronouncing woes, which is a form of judgment and condemnation against somebody, well, it might feel a bit heavy-handed to us. But friends, I want to I remind us that when it comes to matters of people being led astray from God, like Jesus, we too should be enraged by such things. So what Jesus is about to unleash and say, though it may not necessarily fit our concept of who Jesus is, I assure you that it, it, it reveals God's heart regarding the situation. And the question that arises from verses 13 through 15 is this. In what ways might we be hindering people's salvation? In what ways might we be hindering people's salvation? Verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the door on the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you don't go in and you don't allow those entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, who travel over land and sea to make one convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you are. Somehow, in, in their, their blindness to see Jesus for who he really is, these Jewish leaders were, were, were keeping others from seeing Jesus for who he was as well. The God who, who they're claiming to serve, they're actually undermining his work. So much that Jesus says it's as if they had switched teams and are now playing for hell. And the implications for us this morning, church, is it's pretty simple. Don't be like them. Don't, don't be the ones who, who either by your words or your lifestyle wear the team jersey, lead others to put it on, but in reality you have no concept of the sport that you're playing. Because when you do, Jesus says, you're actually making things worse. Now, in verses 16 to 24, Jesus kind of builds this out some more. And, 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 it, and it brings us to another heart question, and that is this. In what ways are we more concerned with our interpretations of God's laws than we are with God's explicit commands? In which ways are we more concerned with our interpretations of God's laws than we are with God's explicit commands? He says, Woe to you who say, verse 18, Whoever takes an oath by the altar, it means nothing, but whoever takes an oath by the gift that is on, on it is bound by his oath. Blind people, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, the one who takes the oath by the altar takes an oath by it and everything on it. The one who takes an oath by the temple takes an oath by it and by him who dwells in it. The one who takes an oath by heaven takes an oath by God's throne and by him who sits on it. Essentially, what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders that he's pronouncing judgment on, pronouncing woes to, he says, he says stop doing origami with God's word. The Jewish leaders were, were placing higher worth on objects 
that the people brought into God's presence than God's presence himself. And to cover it up, they were using slick arguments to talk about when it counts and when it doesn't count. And again, if we're honest, man, aren't, don't, aren't we tempted to do the same things? Are there not times that, that we do that, the very, I mean, I know in myself, I'm never so creative as I am when I'm trying to justify my sin. There's this, there's this piece of, of, that, that, that should lead all of us to be careful here. You see, debate, debating nuances of the Christian faith are our personal interpretations of it at the expense of following the explicit commands of God that we know are certain of, we must be careful of. So in other words, husbands... All of our theology and our good doctrine will be annulled in us if we do not love love our wives as Christ has loved the church and live with our wives in an understanding spirit as God has commanded us to do. It's just that simple. I think a lot of us, myself included, are tempted to say, well, what about this? And what about that? And what do you think about what this person says? And what do you think about this position? And, 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 and I'm not saying that there's not room for healthy dialogue. But what I am saying is that learning is always easier than following. And at the end of the day, God's not going to hold us accountable for the words that we, that we don't know. But he's going to hold us accountable for the words that we did and that we did not live by. Which is exactly what these scribes, these religious leaders, these Pharisees were were doing. Verse 23, he says this. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You, You pay a tenth of mint, dill, cumin, and you've neglected, what? The more important matters of the law. You've you've done all this other stuff, but you've neglected the things that matter most. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat but gulp down a camel. What we see is is that there is often a temptation to neglect good things that are hard for easy things that are harmful. Jesus says, you you guys are, are doing what comes easy, but you're neglecting things that are important. Things like what he now describes in verses 25 through 28, the inner life, which is our next heart question. And that's this. Are we focused on outward cleanliness instead of inward transformation? In what ways might we be be focused on, on outward cleanliness to the neglect of inward transformation? Verse 25, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the inside, they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Jesus says to these these Jewish leaders, on the outside, man, you guys are killing it. You guys observe all the principles, all the practices, but on the inside, you neglect humility and purity. There, there's, this, there's, this, there's this moral, spiritual flabbiness about you. He says they, they, they have weak will. Their, their life is about self-indulgence. Rather, the question that Jesus is after is, 
where is the inner transformation at? Where is, where is my, my heart being changed so that I desire Christ more and this world less? Where is, is there love and affection for Christ at the root of my obedience? Is my, is my faith in Christ a matter of duty or is it a matter of delight? Do I, do I actually delight to dwell with Christ? Verse 27, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of bones, bones of the dead of every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside, you seem righteous to people, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says, looking on the outside, they look great. They're serving. They're busy for the Lord. They're, they're doing all the things they think they're, they're supposed to be doing. And yet, Jesus says, on the inside, hollowed corpse. Boxes of bones. See, Jesus makes it clear that these men are, are not seeing themselves correctly. That, that when, they, when, they, when they get up in the morning, when they stand before the mirror, what they're actually seeing reflected back to them is actually not what is really in the mirror. Which leads us to our next heart question, and that is, in what ways are we not aware of our own self-deception? Or you could just say, are we aware of our, of our own self-deception? Verses 29 through 36 he says, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. You, you build the tombs of the prophets and, and, and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, well, if we had lived in those days of our ancestors, we wouldn't have taken part in that with them. We wouldn't have, have taken part in the shedding of the prophet's blood. So you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors' sins. So what was, what was happening here is often that the Jewish leaders would build these, these vast monuments, these large tombs to the dead prophets as, as to imply that the present generation would have never done the grievous sins of the previous generation before them. Now, now Jesus... Remember, Jesus here is, is he's rebuking them, and, and he says to these, these you know, these, these leaders, he's, he's giving them a warning, um, uh, which also serves us. But, but the way it serves us is it, is it asks us, again, where might we be deceived like them? Where, where, might, where might we have the wool pulled over our own eyes? Where, where, in what areas why might we ourselves be tempted to think that we're actually further along than we, than we are? You see, it's much better to ask ourselves these heart questions, as hard as they might be, than to receive Jesus' rebuke, which is what we see here in the next verse. Verse 33, he says, Snakes, brood of vipers, how can you escape being condemned to hell? This is why I'm sending you prophets, sages, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. 
So all the righteous blood shed on the earth will be charged to you, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Bechariah, who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I tell you, all these things will come on this generation. Jesus says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You say that you would never do the sins of your ancestors? You're doing the very same things. It was scribes and Pharisees who murdered God's messengers, the prophets of the past. They will murder his missionaries in the future. And if we're being honest, Jesus says, y'all about to kill his son in a hot minute. Don't deceive yourselves by thinking that you're better than you are. The point that Jesus is making is that, that, that they are the children of their prophet-killing ancestors. And they're about to complete their family legacy by killing the greatest prophet of all. It's the same picture that Jesus taught back in chapter 21 in the parable of the tenant farmer. But there's one last question for us. And this one might be the most important question that we can ask. And that is, are you aware, are we aware of Jesus's love for us and the consequences of our rejection of him? Are we aware of Jesus's love for us and the consequences of our rejection for him? Now, be careful not to get whiplash here in the text. Because what we see in these last three verses is the other side of love. You see, in love, Jesus has been rebuking them for their hardness of heart. And in love, Jesus is going to express compassion for sinners. And church, as we read this, notice notice with me how Jesus uses feminine imagery to describe himself which is important for the ways that we construct our mental picture of who God is. He says in verse 37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Oh, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What a, what a beautiful and tragic picture of God's love for rebellious children. In this, in this, in this passage, we, we see clearly Jesus' burning anger and his deep grief over those who reject him. It says, it says he, he longs to gather them together to care for them, but, but they just were not willing. And what he says is that, that with their refusal comes consequences. The blessing that, that Jesus longs to bring can only be received by those who welcome him by faith. And friends, I don't know what, what type of characteristics of, of, of God of, of, comes to mind when you think upon him, but this picture of him like a mother gathering together her children in times of danger under her protective arms, 
This, this picture of feminine strength and beauty should be every bit of our understanding and our mental picture of who God is as much as Jesus exercising masculine strength as he's turning over the, the tables in the temple. And so I pray this morning that, that we've understood that, that this passage is not just for these Pharisees' benefit. But it's for ours. I think often we read Matthew 23 and we think, man, Jesus got angry. Like, like this like bipolar moment for Jesus. He's really rebuking these guys. No, this is for our benefit as well. That before we can, that before we can see the cross as something done for us, we have to understand that the cross was something done by us. Which is why, friends, God's word this morning calls us to respond by faith and repentance. Confessing our sins, believing Christ to be the very Son of God, following him in all that he's commanded. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that by your word, both the words of comfort and the words of rebuke, your people find life. And so this morning, God, we pray that even as we would leave this place and go about our weeks, that your word would shape everything from the way we live our life to the way that we think throughout this week to the ways that we will, the things we'll give ourselves over to, God, that you will actually conform us and shape us according to your your steadfast love for us through Christ. And so, God, this morning we pray that your spirit would do the work that only it can do. We ask for that. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.